Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us on this Thursday. Um, I'm delighted, uh, and thank you to my friend Kelly, who alerted me to this great story that was on um, the Community Voices section of Bring Me the News. And it was called Break the Cycle, Five Changes in Minnesota Policing that can be act- enacted right now. And um, Shelly Schaefer is joining us, joining us, and she's chair uh, of criminal justice at Hamlin University. And I know you're a teacher there. You're a peace officer. Do we have that right? Um, I'm not a peace officer. Okay. I oh. am... Um, I knew I'd get that wrong. Peace, <laughs> I'm the professional peace officer education coordinator. Okay. So myself, I've not um, had a career in law enforcement. I've had a career within the criminal justice system before becoming a faculty member. So, um, okay. Yeah. So that's just the distinction there. See, since we just met yesterday on the phone, I should have just had you introduce yourself, Shelly. I was doing so well up until then. But I, we did want to talk to you because that was um, that's really what got um, my attention in reading the story and is having it specifically broken out about these five immediate changes that could be made in policing here in the state of Minnesota that could be enacted right now. If you wouldn't mind giving me the one, the, the, I think you, did you write, um, change the use of force statue? In Minnesota, was so, it? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So actually, um, even though our pictures sort of look like they align with certain um, recommendations as a collective, my colleagues and I, Gina Erickson, Sarah Greenman, and uh, Jillian Peterson wrote the entire op-ed. Okay. And so we all sort of contributed in different areas that we probably have a little more um, expertise. So I would say, you know, something that I could comment on would be sort of officer training um, and education, because as the professional peace officer coordinator at Hamlin, um, I am tasked with making sure that um, students who come to Hamlin who wish to go into law enforcement, um, that our curriculum is meeting the learning objectives that are put forth by the post board. And So there are 410 learning objectives that the post board mandates that um, PPOE schools, so for short, I'll call uh, I'll call the professional peace officer education PPOE, um, that they mandate that both the PPOE schools and skills providers have to cover these 410 um, learning objectives. So um, in the op-ed, what we were suggesting. Um, in evaluation of both officer training and then the post board was that there isn't, you know, a lot of oversight into how those learning objectives are deployed across the institutions that are accredited to teach them. Um, And sort of our questions are really thinking about, you know, there's not really a standardization. Right. So if you could imagine you have 30 different schools 10 skills providers um, that are teaching these 410 learning objectives, 
but they're all teaching, you know, this is just a learning objective. There's not a curriculum necessarily that is tied to that. So right. the length of time spent on any certain learning objective could vary greatly across schools um, and skills providers. And so that's where we're really calling for this independent evaluation and oversight of that to get a better understanding of, you know, who's doing the training, mm-hmm. how, you know, how, what's the assessment, what's the evaluation. Right. And then I also, uh, you uh, wrote about, um, you know, establishing a critical incident review board for like specific cases or for, I mean, that's surprising uh, that they don't. They, they, I, know, I thought that shocking. there was like a citizen review board or a council. Does that not exist? So there is a citizen review board, and I believe now in Minneapolis it has has a has a different title. Mm-hmm. But I think what our recommendation was trying to suggest is a critical incident review board is different than maybe a citizen review board in the mm-hmm. sense that a citizen review board might be looking to seek fault, right. where a critical incident review board is really trying to pull in many system providers. And to look at an unbiased look at a particular case, a particular inst- instance, and then make re- recommendations system wide. Interesting, yeah, um, to create best practices and, or something. Right. So it's a little bit. It's a different sort of, I think, model than what is currently established, um, especially for maybe redu- reviewing police incidents and right. reduction especially of harm. Reports. You'd think that if that existed in some of these cases in Minnesota in particular in the Minneapolis force, what those outcomes maybe could have been. Right. And I think um, my colleague, Sarah Greenman, um, is on the domestic fatality review team. And um, from my understanding, it's really to learn, you know, in cases, um, you know, in cases where there's a fatality um from domestic violence, what can we learn? What can we do different next time from a system-wide perspective? Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's almost an autopsy of that case, and we and we need to learn and make recommendations. And so that's different than reviewing for fault. Mm-hmm. And I think that was um, why we were making that suggestion. What is the uh, thing? How do you get thing the change where you have... Um... Things like uh, a traffic stop or someone being accused of using counterfeit money, that that nonviolent things, why are such aggressive tactics even part of the situation? How do you get that changed? Well, I think, you know, speaking, I think part of it is we do authorize use of force to Mm -hmm. police by statute. And, you know, it's authorized to be used when making a lawful arrest. I think what one of the things to examine is, you know, the judgment of the reasonableness of the amount of force is based on that objective reasonableness of the officer at the time. And model policies that we have would say you should be looking at the severity of the crime. Mm-hmm. We want to be looking at, you know, the, the amount of force, not whether or not you can use force, it's the amount of force, you know, does the suspect pose an immediate threat? Right. Um, is is a suspect actively resisting or attempting to evade arrest. Um, and so I think, you know, thinking about in those situations for a counterfeit dollar, counterfeit money in that case, you know, they have the authorization to use force because there was a lawful arrest happening. Yeah. I think it's the reasonableness based on that objectiveness of the officer at the time. Do you feel um, hopeful, Shelley, that that real 
change can happen in, in as far as reexamining, you know, how this is done? Because, uh, you know, I feel like uh, we, there were like changes that were going to be made after Philando Castile. And I don't think that I think it was like put in a report and left to collect dust. You know, I think there's a lot of us, and as a social scientist, I think, you know, we have been aware of the disparities, Mm -hmm. especially in the disparities in our criminal justice system across from, you know, you think of police to prosecution to corrections and then reentry, right? right? For many people who've been incarcerated trying to um, reenter society, I think that there is a level of frustration about how slow it is to change, but I think we are committed to being part as social scientists to, you know, analyze, use data um, to make recommendations. And, you know, to the point that you made about the $12 million um, after uh, Castile was uh, killed, Mm -hmm. you know, that is one of the areas also that we have called to evaluate because it was $12 million um, of funding that was to go towards three specific training areas for in-service training. So that would be uh, someone who is already, you know, sworn peace officer and currently working. And it was crisis intervention and mental illness, um, conflict management, mediation, and implicit implicit bias, community diversity, and cultural differences. And so our call was, you know, has there been an independent evaluation of the use of those funds? Okay, you got it. Can you hold that thought, Shelly? Because we need to go back. We'll come back to you. And so you can just explain that again. And we'll just, and then we also have one other thing that we hope that you can explain to us from a criminal justice standpoint. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. We are having a conversation with Shelly Schaefer, who's the chair of criminal justice at Hamlin. And I'm not going to say all the other things that you're in charge of, Shelly, because we don't have time for that. But I do want you to go back to, um, you know, one of the things that happened as a result of Philando Castile's uh, death uh, by the officer, the money that was going for training to try and change uh, mm-hmm. what was happening? Yeah, so there there was $12 million that was dedicated to training in specific three specific areas. And, um, you know, one of the things that we in our op-ed, um, uh, you know, suggested is that, you know, where has there been an independent evaluation of these funds or an assessment on their impact? And in fact, who's doing the training? I mm-hmm. mean, if we do know that the post board um, approves training for online, like national online um, entities. So, for instance, you could do all of your post training from an online entity in Texas. And I think we're calling upon, you know, the post board to suggest if you really want to train on implicit bias or community diversity, there are leaders, experts within our local communities that should be you know, yeah, that's that crazy. They need to re-examine that post board. That sounds like they got some. Uh, they got a lot of, like a what do you call it? Blue tape, red ribbon, or whatever you want to call it. It just doesn't make sense. And that is one of our suggestions. Also, is to to re-examine that post board. I mean, re-examine the seats. You know, who is that? Who the post board is? Fifteen members. Ten of those are held by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and to really start looking at those things. And, and you know, a lot of it is calling for independent evaluations. And, you know, when you legislate funding, then you should also have certain 
amount of funding to go to independently evaluate and understand where that training is happening. Um, you know, what are the evaluations and the assessments? Do you know if that if any of this stuff is being looked at with a serious eye by, I don't know if it would be the governor or the mayor of Minneapolis or the police chief, or, you know, I, I don't know. But do you know? Well, we have, I mean, as a department, we have communicated with the director of the post board. We have communicated um, with um, the policy advisor to the lieutenant governor. And mm-hmm. we do, as a department, have um, a meeting scheduled next week yeah. with the post board to start making some suggestions about, you know, research and how as social scientists um, we can start to begin to evaluate, um, you know, some of this information. But, you know, data is, you know, I wanted to just, if I could have one last yeah. thing to say, I know that yesterday, um, I believe Carol Evans, um, showed some of the da- Minneapolis police has a dashboard that draws upon their police information management system data about um, use of force cases. So mm-hmm. we, you know, learning from that information that 20% of Minneapolis residents report being black, but 60% of the use of force incidents are against a black individual. But that's a, you know, huge disparity. But keep yeah. in mind, Many, not all use of force incidents even have to be reported by an officer into that police management system. Wow. So it's probably so way higher. If you, <laughs> so it's a tip of the iceberg. Right? Yeah. So I think they're, you know, drawing your gun or pointing a gun at a suspect, according to the Minneapolis police policies, would not require you to provide an incident report. That's terrible. Or notify supervisors. So, you you know, I think there's trauma. It's yeah. not just physical trauma. It's the trauma to these communities. Right. Wow. That That's just mm-hmm. really shocking. Well, I, I and I also think that, um, you know, the public information function of the Minneapolis Police Department seems like that needs to be reformed as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if that... I think there's a lot of transparency yeah. that that through these um, reforms that I think is definitely some of what our suggestions are. But I also think just having these conversations, you know, calling me and having me on the air is also, you know, I think part of conversations that are starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, calling upon citizens and community members and a lot of community members have been fighting for a long time to have their voices heard, but you know, for all of us to start having these conversations. Right. And, and, you know, and there are, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating just from the fact that I have a a brother-in-law who's a police officer, but um, there are a lot of very good police officers that have good intent and take their duties seriously. I don't know what kind of, uh, you know, effects it has to, to have that job, the stresses of it. But also, you know, it seems like there's been a cone of silence sort of around some of this because of the whatever it might be, the machismo, whatever the, you know, the unwritten rules of the the clubhouse, if you will, or the, you know what I'm saying? That that's mm-hmm. been, that's such a part of all of this too. Right. And I just and wonder I, about yeah. that stress and are people... Or, or, you know, how stressed out are police officers about that? It's got to be hard. I mean, right. I mean, there's definitely in, you know, uh, recommendations about officer wellness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, we also recognize that that also has to be part of 
uh, solutions. I also think there the, the sort of oversight of discipline of sort of those officers that we know mm-hmm. have had use of force incidents against them. You know, I think there has to be better transparency, um, especially for revocate for revocation of licensure. So for the post board to revoke your license, it would have to be based on a criminal conviction. So we know that that's a much higher standard than just a policy infraction. And so, you know, if you see these officers that over time have these, you know, policy violations, how are they able to still hold their license? And I think that's also a push for us is to think about we need to enact the post board or another body to be able to think about revoking license for these egregious policy violations. Well, I, I'm I'm so glad that uh, that was in Bring Me the News. I mean, I do like their community voices, and that, that was really a just a spot-on story. It just made it seem like, okay, like this seems like they could get it done if there's a big enough outcry and we've got the right people behind it, that real change, because it does have to happen in that direction, and then it also has to happen, we can't say it enough, voting and starting at a local level and all the way up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shelly, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for uh, allowing me to share some of our thoughts with you today. Yeah. Done a a lot of work. Thank you very much.